Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. All right, Akiva, welcome to Parshat Akev. Today we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of the reward. It begins, the the Parsha really begins by saying, right, that um, there is a reward for those who listen and do the mitzvot, listen to to, to the laws and do the mitzvot. And I, I, I thought it was, a really great opportunity to talk about the idea of reward and external versus internal motivation. Um, this is often described in the time in the terms of the rabbis as shalolishma balishma, that which does not start off being for the sake of heaven um, will eventually become for the sake of heaven. And so I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about reward and internal versus external motivation. Sure. So, you know, when we we learned, it wasn't long enough ago to be an impressive date, but we, we learned relatively recently in the medical world that people don't necessarily do things because you tell them to do them. Uh, hence the the idea of the external motivator, right? So people used to go and see their doctor, and their doctor would say, you need to lose weight. And surprise, surprise, that wasn't enough for most people to do that. Despite the fact that we could even then go in further, and, and doctors would, you know, more or less browbeat their patients and say, you know, if you don't lose weight... This will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. So you really need to lose weight. And you can pick any other example. You can pick quit smoking, uh, drink less, um, sleep more, eat more fiber, whatever you want, right? It doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? Because those are all external sources. And we are really a a group of individuals, humans as a whole, that really strive for what internally motivates us. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be an external reward, an external benefit. What it means is you have to find what is enough of a driver internally to push you to do something that you may not want to do, and that reward is bonus. So, you know, a perfect example would be someone who... Again, same situation. Maybe they're they need to lose weight. Doctor's been telling them for years, lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. 
then their oldest child gets engaged. All of a sudden, I want to see my grandkids. I want to run after my grandkids. I want to walk my grandkids. Whatever. All of a sudden, we have that internal drive. We found that piece that tells us, okay, here it is. This is what the real carrot is. And that's really what it is. It's not about not having a carrot. It's about knowing what the carrot is that will work for who. And... Absolutely. So, so Avi, you referenced the idea that if you do something that you're supposed to be doing for the war reward long enough, you'll end up eventually wanting to do it for its own benefits. And that there is a lot of truth to that as long as you can find that benefit. So, you know, someone can become a Talmud Torah if they find that joy in it but somebody who is naturally inclined and very skilled doesn't mean they're going to become a joyful Torah scholar just because they're good at it. And we see that a lot, right? All the time we, we comment on people's potential. And so I think the additional piece that would go with this is maybe talking for a moment about short-term versus long-term goals. In other words, you talked, I'll go back to the example you gave of somebody who has a child who just got engaged. Yes, right, playing with their grandchildren may be a motivator for them, but an even sh more short term might be dropping a few pounds before the wedding so that they can dance at the wedding or look good at the wedding. So talk to us for a little bit about the short term versus the long term um, goals and how that that might inspire people. Whenever somebody's setting any kind of goal, <clears throat> I encourage them to set a goal that is, we actually have a term, uh, an acronym, um, SMART, S-M-A-R-T, which is specific, measurable, attainable, uh, relatable, and time bound. And basically the idea is, that if you set a goal that's that's clearly specific, measurable, and achievable, and, and consistent, the relative piece is it has to be related to what you want. And the timely is, is within a specific time frame. And really that R is the key. Because, yeah, we can set a short-term goal to lose some weight before a wedding. Absolutely. And we can even be specific and say, I want to lose 15 pounds in two months to be able to fit into a size smaller tuxedo at the wedding. Fine. Uh, currently, perfect, perfectly smart goal, uh, except for the achievable part, which may or may not be a healthy amount of weight loss within that time. Um, suffice it to say, is that sustainable? And that's the difference between a short-term goal and a long-term goal. A short-term goal, oftentimes, if we're really building a long-term goal up, then we're going to build it based off of a series of short-term goals that are going to continue to have that motivator in mind. Because otherwise what happens, and I'm sure many people can relate to this, you lose some weight for the wedding, and then what happens after the wedding? It's back. That's why that carrot again is so important, and knowing what that carrot is internally. And, you know, we... 
I think another piece to kind of talk about is that developmental piece. When we're children, everything is an external goal. We don't really think about it in the terms of, I will do this because it will make me feel really good later. At some point, yeah, I do this because I want to please my parents or I want to please my teacher or what have you. But ultimately, that's that transitional period where we really start to learn, okay, well, what are the external rewards that mean something to me? And how do I drive myself for those internally? And ideally, as we grow and become healthy, well-adjusted adults, we are able to transform for ourselves what are our internal motivators and what are the external rewards that mean something to us. So one of the pieces, Akiva, that comes out in the Parsha is Hashem says that if we follow the mitzvot, if we do the things we're supposed to do, Hashem will take care of us in all of our basic needs. Hashem will provide for food and for shelter and for procreation and for all of those things that are required for society to continue. However, the the requirement in order for that to be provided seems to be something in the much more complicated realm. In other words, Hashem is saying that in order to receive these things, you need to use your your cognitive abilities and your spiritual abilities and your uh, physical abilities to connect with Him, God, whatever whatever pronoun you'd like to use. And so, talk to us a little bit about how you see that connection and where that might take us. Well, I mean, I think certainly <clears throat> a lot of the... Let, let's, let's, I guess, start with maybe the um, Aserita Dibram, right? So, so we, we, in fact, just last, last week had a repetition of those. And a lot of the Aserita Dibram, certainly the, the last five are all really the same idea, that higher level, but really it, it satisfies all of those base needs. It satisfies the uh, protection, from, uh, protection, period. Let's just call it protection. It satisfies the... Um, the having what you need. And, and in the beginning, the first five are, are the same thing. Really the idea of what do I do at a higher level order to be able to achieve those. And, and I guess the question that really kind of is intriguing about this whole process is animals have all the base levels met. Just, just by existing and, and being a successful species, they have all the base needs met. And yet, we as humans, in general, struggle to achieve those base needs. And we see that the question is, I guess, maybe are our base needs base needs? 
is shelter shelter or is shelter having more than having having a comfort and animals aren't necessarily comfortable they are just surviving and so i suppose the idea is and <clears throat> it's very intriguing to me that when we see how this is laid out you know what do we see is the next piece that hashem makes clear is when you were in the wilderness you didn't have to work for more th- for for comfort right you had the comfort and and we have the the text is so clear about the level of comfort the clothes didn't wear the um the food was provided for you and we know the the idea that the the mana was whatever satisfying thing we we ideally needed the honey cakes was the description um but presumably that's been the idea of a, a sweet satisfying food um and so. the and the ananeha kavod provided the protection so right everything everything they needed in the, while they were in the wilderness was provided for them right so i guess and i'm going to kind of toss the spiritual side of this back to you avi is um we know that Bnei Yisrael did struggle with the concept of leaving that comfort. Why would they have wanted to? Why would they want to work instead of having it handed to them? So this may be putting it back to you, but it strikes me very much as the parent-child relationship right? The parent's responsibility when the child is young is to care for them, protect them, provide them with food, provide them with shelter. But at a certain point, hopefully, the child says, you know what? I want to get out on my own. I want to be able to do things for myself. And the parent knows that sometimes that means the child is going to make poor choices, and have to live with the consequences of those poor choices. And yet the parent understands it's important for the child to be able to go off and be independent, appropriately independent. So whether that is the stage where they can go off and play at a friend's house by themselves, or whether it's the stage where they're going off to college and uh, may, may be financially responsible to a certain extent for their own lives, um, and I think most parents hope that their children will want to go off and be independent as opposed to saying, no, nah, it's really comfortable here, mom and dad. I think I'm just going to live in my room forever. So, Avi, I 100% love where you went with that because I couldn't have said it better myself. <clears throat> but I'm going to redirect you to the, to the rabbinical side where we're reminded, right, don't forget... Hashem is the one who did this all. And what's very interesting is, right, we know from the psychological standpoint that the parents are not in a healthy way in the background saying, just so you know, that bill you paid? Yeah, that's because I taught you. That uh, that degree you got? Yeah, that's because I studied with you. Right? We know that the importance of that independence is clearly to see independence. And yet we are reminded very clearly, don't for an instant forget that everything you have, everything you are and everything you've done and will do is by the grace of God. So 
Yeah, let's talk about that. I think that this <clears throat> this that may be where this analogy departs, because um, on the one hand, yes, parents provide, and and oftentimes parents are the ones providing for the education and for the health of the child by providing them with the ability to go to the doctor when they're younger and the ability to eat healthy foods and, in fact, sometimes taking away the unhealthy foods. Um, but at the same time, it isn't quite the same as God who is saying, I'm the one who provides food as in, without me, there wouldn't be any for any of you. And so there's the individual component, but there's a communal component as well. And I think the idea of recognizing that there is a power greater than us is also a factor in humility, right? Um, I'm blanking on who it was, but there was a, a, a rabbi who used to walk around and in his pockets he would have two psukim. And in one it would say, Bishvili nivra ha'olam, for me the world was created. And in the other pocket it would say, Afar ve'efer anochi, I am simply dust and dirt. And he said, I carry them in each pocket on either side of me to remind me that I am supposed to be in between. I should never be too little because the world was created for me. But I should also never be too large, because at the end of everything, I will simply return to the dust of the earth. And so, here too, there's this idea of, you know, on the one hand saying, I'm going to be proud of my accomplishments, and I'm going to try and improve the world, and I'm going to try to make things happen. And on the flip side, knowing, you know what, in terms of history, my life is just a drop in the water. And in terms of the, the difference of the world, it's really in God's hands. Because even if I make some major breakthrough, right, it's nothing in comparison to the creation of the world and in comparison to the powers that God has. So Avi, in <clears throat> this Parsha, we're introduced to the seven species. And, you know, I, I think that anyone who has been to Israel or heard of the fantastic climates that exist there and the diversity of the produce that's been able to be created, um, there's no question that there's something special. At the same time, when we are introduced to the seven species, there is theoretically what I would argue is an eighth species before all of the other. And what I'm referring to is water. Right? It says right before we talk about the land of wheat, barley, grape, fig, pomegranate, land of olives... Uh, and date honey first we have water being mentioned 
and quite frankly, of all of the things and natural resources that I think of when I think of Eretz Yisrael, uh, water's not so much on the list, for good reason. It, it isn't as plentiful as some of the others, which of course is why it's so much more amazing what they can grow. But maybe you can kind of go over us a little bit, not only the profound wonder of the seven species, but also maybe give us a little bit of insight on the the constant mentioning of water and yet the true lack, comparably, of the amount of water that we have. Sure. So let's let's dive right into the topic of water. The one of the things that we specifically talk about in Shema as being part of the blessing and promise of Hashem is water. It's rain because it's needed for crops to grow and it's needed for people to drink and and for life to continue. You mentioned that Israel doesn't have a lot of water. That's a, a more modern uh, scenario as we use more and more water. But one of the things to keep in mind is that the water that is low in Israel, the water that people are concerned about in Israel, is the fresh water. It's the drinking water. Um, but there's other water there as well, right? There is the Mediterranean Ocean, and that was used for trade and for travel. Um, but there are many places that are also referred to in halacha where they talk about water. So water is an opportunity for them to... It, it, is, it is the way that we become tahor when we were tameh, that we become pure when we were impure. Right? The mikvah is full of natural water either rainwater or spring. Um, and so I think there is a general push and direction to recognize the importance and in some ways really amazing nature of water. Um, you know, I often talk to, when I, when I try to speak with people who have not yet recognized how amazing God is, I will often point to things like water and I say the fact that it can equally nourish animals, plants, and people. The fact that, doctor, what percent of, of our bodies is made up of water? That would be a high percent. Yeah, probably in the 70 to, 70, 90. 70 to 90% range, right? And so, One of them is the earth and one of them is people. I was going to say, and the earth is also covered in, in water. Um, and so, therefore, we require water, right? There's the, the rule of threes that says, really, people can't go more than three days without water and liquid. Um, and yet, right, for anybody who's gone on a diet, one of the things that they learn and that is truly amazing is, here's this liquid we must have in order to survive, and yet it has no calories. So... 
Avi, I guess one of the questions that I would have, and maybe this is in part answering a bit of my own question, is, you know, I also, of course, a lot of this is juxtaposed to when we were slaves in Egypt. And in Egypt, of course, they had the Nile, and they worshipped the Nile. The Nile was was a god, and or at least some godlike being. Sorry if I offended anybody who is listening who is more up-to-date on Egyptian deities. Um, Suffice it to say, the Nile was something that was worshipped. And is it possible that perhaps the fact that we have all these amazing things and yet um, there is a relative lower amount of easy easy access drinkable water... Because sure, there's there's the Mediterranean, there's um, you know Yamamelach, but the truth is is that relative to a lot of the other plentiful lands, uh, there there was there was even, less water. even then less. Well, so I think I I think it's an interesting point, and, and the idea was that part of the reason that the Nile was worshipped was because some years it would be bountiful and some years less so, but it was really responsible for all of the irrigation that would happen in Egypt. Israel doesn't have that option. Israel has to rely on rain. And so this idea of, you know, I'm I'm not just going to give you water. You have to earn it. You have to do what I've asked you to do. And then you get the rain as the, as the positive consequence for it. Um, definitely ties them to God and definitely gives them sort of those short-term connections, right? Every time it rains, remember, that's me telling you I love you. And so I think that that's, that's also a component of, of rain and why Shema specifically talks about the importance of rain to grow crops. So Avi, what you're saying is, is basically between the water mentioned throughout the Parsha, quite frankly, ending with the importance of water in the second paragraph of the Shema, uh, which is necessary for the growth in the land, and of course then the growth of the seven species, you might say that the uh, water really ties the Parsha together. It does. It does. It talks. It, it it ties together the parsha. It talks about the the different areas of Israel and and the climates that each one is a little bit different. There's arid. There is um, fertile, and and all of that ties back to the idea of how much rain are you getting, and is God providing it for you. So at the very end of the Parsha, Hashem says that Hashem will set terror and fear on the face of the entire earth where you will go, that people will fear B'nai Israel. As a teacher, we often talk about what we want our reputation to be and encourage our students to think about what their reputation will be. Not because we should worry about what other people think of us, but rather because that helps drive our actions and our motivations. And so 
The question for the Shabbos table this week is, what do you want your reputation to be, and what actions do you need to do or not do in order for that to be true? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.